right, why don't you, uh, if you can, grab a Bible or your bulletin, whatever's going to have it in front of you. We're in 1 Corinthians this morning, that's in the New Testament, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. Um, if, you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, let me, let me just catch you up. We're in the middle of a series that we're calling Reconsider, and that, that title is Intentional. Uh, because if you've, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've heard me talk about this growing number of people in our culture who um, are leaving behind specifically Christian faith to take up this, uh, this uh, category, this self-description of having no religious affiliation, right? And my experience from conversation with folks who would say that about themselves or for reading the accounts of how they got there is that... Most of these folks have left behind specifically Christianity, not because they've seen something else that seemed more attractive that they wanted to go to, but because something in Christianity disturbed them. The rather sneaky thing about most of these stories was that this was a process that happens over time. It's not something that happens in a moment. It's not like you, you read something in the Bible one day and you're like, ah, this is it, I'm out. It's something that goes on over time, which means that it's possible, if not likely, if not assured, that some of us in this room are in that process. We're in that process. We don't want to admit it. We'd rather not talk to anybody about it because, you know, we're part of a church community and we're not supposed to talk about that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard. Sometimes it, 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 there's a shame involved with it uh, because... Why does everyone else seem to get it and I don't? Well, this series in many ways is for you because what I've also found is that many folks on this path are leaving behind not biblical Christianity, but a version of Christianity that, that they've been either taught or assumed. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about our beliefs about God, right? You remember that? We talked about the fact that a lot of us um, aren't uh, when we think about God, we're not thinking about the God, uh, the God of the Bible, uh, God as the Bible describes him, God as God himself describes himself in the Bible. We're thinking of, you know, a Coke machine or, or a Superman or uh, something like that. And then last week, we looked at the Bible itself and our assumptions about that. And, and all we're really doing in this series is simply asking that we reconsider some of these things. So this morning we come to what is, in fact, like the central thing, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your place in 1 Corinthians, let's stand uh, in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading um, verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It's God's word for us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Our Father, there is nothing more difficult to believe, I think, than that someone who is dead comes back to life. We can kind of get the idea of you making all things. We have some different ways of thinking about that. We get even the idea of some miracles, because that seems like, okay, that's, that's fine, but have a dead man come back. That, that seems completely absurd. And so we ask whether we've been walking with Jesus for a long time or, or we just wandered in here this morning and aren't really sure about any of this, we ask that you would open our hearts that we might believe. Not in belief, but in something that happened. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. I want to prepare you for something this morning, and that's that um, this, this sermon will be a little more teachy than preachy. Uh, I like to warn you when that, when that happens. Um, so I, I, we'll get to the preachy towards the end, but I, what I want to do is, is really flesh out a, something a bit more that I briefly mentioned last week. <coughs> Excuse me. And that is the difference between uh, scientific knowledge and historical knowledge, Okay. Uh, scientific truth, historical truth, scientific method and historical method. And, and before you check out on me, because you're like, Sunday is not a school day. I don't want to do this. Just, this is actually incredibly important, specifically for this conversation. Okay? Scientific knowledge, okay, when we learn something scientifically, we are, there are some assumptions that go into that. One is that there is a universe that is orderly, that works a certain way all the time, which is, odd because until Christianity, that was not an assumption, right? The Greeks thought everything was in flux, whether it was because the foundation of everything was fire or whether it was water or Heraclitus and blah, blah, blah. The idea was that things change and things are all over the place, thank you. Um, But scientific knowledge is based on the assumption the world and the universe is, is regular, that it happens the same way all the time. And so that if you observe things in controlled environments acting a certain way, you can predict with close to certainty, not absolute certainty, but beyond normal thoughts of this this just is random, that those things in, in those controlled environments will happen every time or at least most of the time. And so science is observation based to not only see why something happens, but to be able to predict whether it will happen in the future under those conditions. You with me? I know you're like, oh my gosh, science class. I know I didn't like science either. I was a history guy. Historical knowledge is different than scientific knowledge because historical knowledge generally deals with people and events and people and events are complex. That knowledge is gathered through testimony and evidence, not through experimentation. 
You cannot run a series of experiments to see whether or not, if given the same circumstances in the same situation, if something historical will happen. You just, there's too many variables. And so instead, what you do is you go to, to testimony, those who saw it, those who heard it, those who were there, and evidence. Was there physical evidence that kind of corroborates that? You gather all the accounts of what happened, all the evidence, and you attempt to sort through it and recreate a picture of something that makes the most sense out of the most evidence. You with me? This is important. And you're like, why is this important? Religion isn't about history. Ah, religion isn't. Christianity is. Because both of these things, science and history, are probability-based. Uh, we're always looking at what's the most likely possibility, but history kind of more so and, and, and is more obviously so. And so what we do is we say, what makes the most sense out of this data, whether, whether we have seen something happen before or not? What, is, what makes the most sense out of this? And this is what we are dealing with when it comes to Christianity's assertion that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, many of us already, from the get-go, just kind of rule that out as an impossibility, right? Like I said, I said it last week, I'll say it again. Dead men don't get up. We know this. We know that dead people don't come back. The problem is that unless we fall into the historical arrogance that I talked about last week, you know, that ancient people are just dumb. Unless we fall into that, we have to acknowledge that it's kind of the whole point, right? Kind of the whole point is that dead people don't get up. They don't get up now. They didn't get up in the first century. First century people thought it was impossible as well. And so if we're to be good historians, not Bible thumpers, but good historians, then what we have to do is we have to take the data and seek to come up with a theory that makes the most sense out of what we have, right? Now, of course, on the other side of that is the question of why does this matter anyway, and we'll get into that later. And so first, what I wanna do is I wanna deal with what happened, and then I wanna deal with why we care. Outline, as always, if you don't like those, don't worry about it. I mean, I stuffed them in the back for you, but if you don't wanna use it, that's fine. I won't be hurt. I really won't, don't worry about it. Let's start with what happened, okay? And begin where you would begin with any event, the testimony. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, not everybody is, you're probably already calling foul, right? Because we're talking about the Bible as testimony. And you're thinking, isn't that skewed? Well, yeah, but let me ask you a question. What testimony is ever given that says, I'm not really sure that this happened or not, but I'm gonna tell you what I think I saw. All testimony is skewed into the event of, this is what I saw and I believe it happened. That's all testimony. Whether you're talking about somebody who saw a crime committed or somebody who, who uh, is saying, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. All testimony is skewed in the direction of, I believe what I saw. <laughs> if you don't believe what you saw, you're probably not going to give the testimony in the first place, right? And I don't care whether that's saying uh, that, that Jesus rose from the dead or something else. This is why we make historical judgments. All testimony, all witnesses are in some extent vested in their assertion that said thing happened. Okay? 
It's not strange to this. Now, let's get into the text. Look down at verses 3 to 8 if you have your passage out. So this passage is written by the Apostle Paul, which is a very, another very important detail that we'll get to a little later. Um, if you don't know anything about Paul, he's an interesting dude. Highly educated guy from a college town in, in the Roman Empire called Tarsus. Uh, had like the second most prestigious university in the ancient world. I know that doesn't mean anything to us, right? Because we're like, yeah, but what did they really study? The point is, he wasn't a dummy. He was militantly anti-Christian. That's a pretty important detail. He believed that the followers of Jesus were actually um, ruining, the Christian, ruining the Jewish faith, making it impure and bringing judgment on the Jewish people. That's what he believed. And so he went around town to town, house to house, personally jailing Christians or killing them. Like that's what he did. But then something happened. Something, uh, I wish we could get into that historical event, but we're not into that today. Something happened that changed him and he began preaching the faith he tried to destroy. Like I said, how something like that could happen is a great question, but that's a historical question for another time, okay? The important thing is what he's writing right now. And this letter that we call 1 Corinthians um, is, is written probably about 25 years after Jesus died. So it's not really long. I mean, some of us are like, that's, a, that's an eternity. Wait till you're the rest of our ages. And then you'll be like, 25 years? It's almost when I graduated college, you know? It's, it's not, that, not that long ago. Um, but what this means is this is really early stuff. In other words, this is not like, hundreds of years later when traditions get built up in legends, 25 years. So let's, let's get into it. He says this in verse three, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now stop there. He is saying right here that he passed on to the Corinthians when he started that church, and that's what he did, he planted it, he began that church. He's passing on to them something that he was told. And this is important because one of the earliest New Testament documents, first Corinthians, is saying, and something that we, we are going to see later, um, is one of the newest early uh, New Testament documents is saying that the central fact of, of what Christians are proclaiming is this. Okay, let's go on. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, some not so much. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay, stop there. Let me break this down. Paul is making an argument, but, and here's the important thing, this is not an argument based on faith. Do you see that? See, we tend to believe, we tend to be taught in our culture that faith is like this thing that we do, it's like a pole that we're vaulting over this chasm of unknowns, the things that we cannot know. And I just need to take the leap of faith. The person who came up with that, that phrase was not a Christian. It was an existentialist by the name of Kierkegaard, right? Like, he, it, was, it was about jumping into something you didn't know and, and hoping that, that God would grab you. That is not what is happening here. Paul is not saying, I need you to believe in something that we all believe. He's saying, I need you to believe in something that people saw. Saw. 
Very, very important. I'm not sure how you can read this and hear anything but that. Paul is saying is what is the first importance, what is the most important thing is something that happened and there are corroborating pieces to the story. So before I move on, I need to tell you, if you were taught that to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at that door as you come into here, you were lied to. You were lied to. That is not the case. And this is certainly not that. So the first of these corroborating evidences is the scriptures. Now, like I said, some of us don't find that compelling. Uh, And most of those, frankly, that Paul talked to in Corinth wouldn't have found that very compelling. Uh, But he still mentions it, and he mentions it for this reason. Some random dude coming back from the dead really doesn't mean anything other than, wow, right? You know, when when I was in college, I was part of a um, campus ministry. I came to Jesus uh, while I was in college, became a Christian in college. I was part of a campus ministry that um, was all about sharing the gospel with other people. And one of the things that we had kind of been taught was that basically, if you can get somebody to to uh, admit the resurrection, then, then like, they're obviously just gonna come to faith. Which sounded really good until I talked to one of my fellow philosophy religion majors and they were like, and, and we talked about the resurrection, they were like, yeah, sure. And? I mean, that's just kind of weird. Some dude came back from the dead, weird. Yeah, weird. It would be only weird if it weren't for the fact that the resurrection is born out of the story of God's writing in the world and it becomes plausible because of that story. And if that's the case, then the resurrection suddenly isn't weird, it explodes with meaning, okay? So the first thing is he's like, this happened in accordance with the scriptures. Don't worry, we're gonna get back to that. The second thing he says is that there's this multitude of eyewitnesses, and he mentions six total appearances. He says, first, he, he, he appeared to Cephas. Um, Cephas is Peter, is a, another way of saying Peter, the dude who denied Jesus three times at his trial. The 12 is shorthand for those, uh, his closest followers who were left technically at that point. It would have been, you know, 10, because he already appeared to Peter, and Judas, he's gone. So uh, you're only dealing with this, this other 10. Then we have 500 dudes at the same time. Now this one is difficult to believe, right? Right? 500 people, come on. Do you realize that would have been difficult for the Corinthians to believe too? That's why Paul said, and a lot of them are still alive if you wanna go talk to them. Let me ask you something. If you're trying to make up something, if you're trying to make up a story, I'm sure none of us have ever lied to our parents before, right? But if, if, if let's just pretend you've lied to your parents and you go to your parents and you say, and they say, uh, why did you get home late? And you go, you know what? Uh, my car broke down. And, um, and some guy, it's actually a friend of ours, came and helped us out and, and he helped me out and, and he you know, got my car going and I was able to get home. If you were to say, and you can call them right now, right now, and they will corroborate the story. If you're making that up, That is the dumbest thing you have ever done in your life, right? 
Because if you're making up a story and you say there's people that know that can say that this actually happened, and you can go talk to them if you want. For Paul to say, he appeared to 500. Most of those people are still alive. Some have died. That's what he means by falling asleep. Most of them are still alive. In other words, go, go check with them. Don't believe me. Go talk to those who saw it. Does that sound, I mean, listen, I know, we're not making any judgments yet. Does that sound like something you would do if you were just making up a story? Do you, just, do you tell people to go check your facts? We're all about fact checkers. Do you actually give your own stuff to the fact checkers? Like, go ahead. Assuming fact checkers are actually checking facts, right? We won't get into that either. All right. Then he talks about James, Jesus' younger half-brother, then all the apostles together, and that would be Peter plus the rest of them. Then he mentions himself, and this is so important. So, like I said, or, or, you know, if you haven't checked back in, please do. Paul is mentioning these eyewitnesses for two reasons. First, the dead don't get up. I think we can agree on this. The dead don't get up. Dead people don't get up. They don't today. They didn't then. And so he's saying, if I'm going to make this claim that this thing happened and it's of first importance, I need to back up my historical claim. I'm not asking people to have faith in faith. I'm giving them something that happened. And if it happened, you need to also give people other people that can say, yes, I saw this. And that's what he's doing. The second reason he's doing this is because the Jewish faith, maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. The Jewish faith is obsessed with this concept of public truth. Public truth is something that happens that other people can see, something that happens in space and time, which is why in the Jewish faith, you read the Old Testament talking about, you know, uh, especially court cases, things like that, obsessed with this idea of two to three witnesses, two to three witnesses, two to three witnesses. You always have to have multiple people backing up what you say. This, the claim that's being made is that Jesus died. He was dead for several days. He rose again. And that makes sense because of the story of the Bible. And that was a public event witnessed by over 500 people who can fact check Paul. Whatever we make of that claim, that we got we to gotta figure that out. But that's the claim that's being made. Okay. Whether you believe it or not, it's another thing. But that's the claim that's being made. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you started down the road of walking away from the faith um, and the seeming impossibility of the resurrection is why you're walking away from the faith, you're probably thinking of alternatives what Paul says here to make sense of it. So let me help you. I'm going to name some. We're going to talk about them. And then uh, we're gonna speak about their plausibility. Now, before, the fa before you cry foul at the fact that I just laid out Paul's claim, and I'm not talking about the implausibility of that, I'm pretty sure that we all know the implausibility of someone rising from the dead, right? We all get that? We don't have to like go over that? We get it. All right, so I'm gonna go over these, okay? So the first alternative is simply that what we mean by resurrection and what they meant by resurrection are two different things, right? We say resurrection and we mean one thing. They said it, they say they mean something else. And this has been put out by many people who want to hold to some semblance of Christianity while also denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So let me say this. The Jewish faith in the first century had a very well-defined understanding of the word resurrection. Okay? 
a very well-defined definition. It was not resuscitation. In other words, it's not zombie Jesus, right? It's not zombie Jesus, it's not Jesus goes to heaven, or that Jesus came out of the tomb bloodied and battered and needed medical attention for loss of blood and such. Dead meant dead. And every gospel writer is very clear that his death was verified by a Roman centurion. And if you don't know anything about Roman centurions, know this. They were professional dealers of death. They knew what someone looked like when they were dead. They knew what would happen when they were dead. And that guy goes, oh, he's already dead. Let me poke him anyway. Ah, water and blood. Still dead. They knew they were dead. Resurrection meant resurrection. And every writer is clear that though he had scars, he was also changed in substantial ways. Okay? Secondly, it also didn't mean, resurrection did not mean having a warm, fuzzy feeling. Right? Like, like you felt inspired by the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. And so now it's, it's as if... He's resurrected in my heart. In the Jewish worldview, uh, that was simply not possible. So it's not a warm fuzzy and it's not a mass hallucination because in the Jewish worldview, resurrection was literally the reversal of death. And I know we don't think of the apostles as Jewish. I don't know why. It's like we kind of forget these are all Jews. This is all happening in a Jewish world. But they come from a Jewish background, hearing the Jewish scriptures, being engaged with the Jewish hopes for the God of Abraham to come and right the world. And from a Jewish worldview, resurrection was the reversal of death, not some kind of existential idea that, you know, I think everything's going to be okay in the end. That simply would not have made any sense to the first people who believed. And on the point of mass hallucinations, we're talking about multiple people in different locations at different times having the exact same hallucination. Really? I mean, some of y'all have been on stuff that causes hallucinations. Have you ever had two of the same? Maybe you're like, yes, it's one. There's a hand and it's crossed. I love it. I, I love his church people are like, am I allowed to laugh at this? Am I allowed to have that nervous laugh of, <laughs> yeah. So it's all right. All right. We're talking about all of these people having mass hallucinations, including a dude who was, who was on his way to kill Christians. Having that same hallucination that all those other Christians had had that, you know, he, he hadn't heard of. He's too busy killing people and jailing people. Eh, maybe you think that's plausible. Another alternative is simply that what Paul says here is what he meant, but he made it all up. That's the easiest one for us to think, right? Kind of the disciples just kind of made this all up. And most of us, when we have that, we think they made it up because they wanted power, they wanted influence, they wanted all this stuff. If it was made up, can I tell you something? These people are terrible at making things up in a convincing way. Okay? Um, so Dan read that passage this morning in Luke um, in which is one of the resurrection passages, right? 
in their own making up of this story, the first people who see Jesus resurrected are women. Now, I know for us, that means nothing. As a matter of fact, we probably think it's more likely it's true because man, they remember everything that happens. But in the ancient world, strangely, they were not reliable witnesses. Their testimony was inadmissible in court. And so if you wanted to make something up, the last people that you would want to be first to see him would be two women. The last people. And if they were, you would have cut them out of the story. Because you're like, no one's going to believe us if we say this. The only reason you would do that is if for some reason you actually believed what you said. (laughs) What's more, stories that include both an empty tomb and sightings that could be easily debunked, you're probably not gonna tell that story, right? And the reality is we have no accounts anywhere of anyone debunking these stories. They may say they don't believe it, but they don't take you, no account takes you to the tomb. No Roman is writing about, listen, I know they said this, come on. Come on, let's get the stone out. We got enough guys, let's do it. Look, he's right there. The second issue is whether this would make sense, okay? Because if you're saying they made this up, that implies that when they made up the idea of a resurrection, that that would have meant something for everyone, that it would have been such an expected event that it would have been received. I mean, right? I mean, even Paul says that this all happened according to the scriptures, right? Doesn't that mean one dude gets up and we go, oh, this is, this is what it means. But when he says that, we need to understand that no one in the first century at the time would have argued that the Christ, God's anointed, expected king, would die and rise all by himself. No one would have said that. That's why they're mocking him as he's on the cross. You say you're the Christ? Come on down. Because of course, like Islam teaches, God wouldn't let his Messiah be crucified. In what universe is that? So of course, no one would expect that. The resurrection was expected, but not that one guy would be raised in anticipation of the whole creation being remade. That was not. Paul and the other Christian leaders were laughed at all over the place for declaring what they were declaring, and of course they were. Have you ever thought about the ridiculousness of this? Hey everybody, there's a new king of the universe. Really, who is it? He's a crucified Jew. No one's thinking, oh yeah, that makes sense. We're good with this. See, we tend to project our situation back in time and claim, oh, they're seeking power. They're they're making this up because they're gonna get influence and all this stuff. Think with me, think with me. We have to think about this. In the first three centuries of the Christian faith, Christians in general, but Christian leaders in particular, were tortured, their property was taken from them, and they were killed. Paul himself, we're told, he tells us, was beaten, shipwrecked, jailed, and eventually beheaded. What power is he grabbing at? 
power is he grabbing at? This is not the medieval Roman Catholic Church where you're basically another noble. This is a guy who's willing to say all this stuff that apparently we can think he made up knowing I'm gonna get beaten like a lot, like 40 lashes minus one multiple times. I'm gonna get shipwrecked, I'm gonna get stoned, and eventually I'm gonna be beheaded. But you know what, life's short, let's do it. Does it make sense that these guys would keep up a lie under these circumstances while gaining absolutely nothing? Does it? All right, now I wanna get into why we care, okay? That's, that's, that's what, what we think happened. Let's get into why we care. And I wanna do that because we all, we all have to come to some agreement. Something happened, right? But so what? And what I wanna do is, if you're using that outline, I'm gonna flip them, I'm gonna deal with the, the um, historical stuff first, okay? We care historically because the resurrection answers the question, why does Christianity exist? Why does it exist? It isn't that we don't see possible alternatives to what the Bible says. It's that if you're a Christian, that the resurrection is the only thing that makes sense of all of the data, including what happened in the years after. To disbelieve in the resurrection, you've gotta come up with an alternative explanation as to why the movement began and why it spread. First century Judea, had plenty of guys who popped up on the scene and said they were Messiah. Jesus wasn't alone in that. Lots of guys did. They came up on the scene, they said they were Messiah. Most of them were killed by Rome. And none of their followers decided to go around and say, you know what? He rose from the dead. And that proves he's God's Messiah. Not a single one. None of them took that as the next logical step to say that their dead leader was God's surprising answer to sin, death, and hell. Not a one. Not only that, you have to explain how a group of people had such a radical and sudden shift in worldview. The apostles, they out themselves in the gospels. They out themselves. They believed as they were coming into Jerusalem that Jesus was finally gonna take up his throne and he would be king exactly like they expected him to. And when he died, they went, this can't be true. He wasn't who we thought he was. Think back to what we talked about last week. The apostles on the road to Emmaus and they say, but we had thought he was God's answer. But clearly it wasn't. And all of a sudden their worldview shifts. Like that. Paul is on his way to go kill Christians. And all of a sudden, he goes from trying to kill Christians to trying to create them. Like that. All of a sudden, there's no process. <laughs> then you had a people who suddenly valued humility and generosity and sexual ethics in a world where such things were scorned. You understand that in Corinth, it was normal to put up a statue to yourself if you had enough money? I mean, think about that. Think about that. Like, you know, maybe you're not super wealthy, but you could, you could put a little stone thing on Beverly Street. 
And it would be, it, on it, you would have written all of your awesomeness. So it may need to be a really small statue, right? But the point is, is like, that was seen as good to do. Can you imagine doing that today? Do you know why you can't imagine doing that today? It's not because the West just evolved. It's because people came on the scene who suddenly said, you know what? We want to be humble because that's what our Lord was like. And that all of his power seemed to be summed up in the fact that he was willing to lay it aside. He didn't need the acclaim. God acclaimed him. In short, you have to explain changed lives from lots of different cultural and socioeconomic contexts. You can't just simply say, nuh-uh. You can't just do that. How, then how did this happen? How did a city that was known for its fornication, a city that was known for sexual ethics that would make the most crazy person in our culture blush, suddenly go from, you know, everything goes and anything goes to, no, just this. Just sex with inside the biblical bounds of marriage. And everyone else is going, what is wrong with you? How does that happen? How does it happen? That's why we care historically, but why do we care spiritually? Well, Paul speaks to it here. In short, the resurrection is the central tenet of the Christian faith. Without it, there is nothing. Look at verses one and two. If you still got your Bible open, he says, let me remind you of the gospel. <laughs> let me remind you of what you First, what I first told you, what you believed. Here is and what was most central. He says, this is what you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless, of course, you believed in vain. What he is saying is that if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then the Christian faith is vain. We're all idiots. Just leave it aside. The reason is because of where it fits. I think we tend to see the resurrection of Jesus as simply just another miracle, right? It's like, <clears throat> it's like you know, he, he, he made food multiply. He, uh, he, he grew some dude's arm back. He made le you know, uh, people that were paralyzed get up and walk. And oh, by the way, he also rose from the dead. And that, of course, proves that he's God, right? No, I mean, don't get me wrong. It is a miracle, it's like the miracle, and it does prove something. Because when someone predicts their death and the fact that they're gonna rise from the dead and then they do it, we should probably believe everything they say, right? But the resurrection isn't just like God flexing, it is the gospel. Because you see, in the story of the Bible, death is not natural, it is an invader. There is a reason why you and I, when our loved ones die, we grieve. There is a reason why in our culture, we refuse to talk about death. We just refuse. We, we, we don't even say the word, do we? We say they passed away. Well, where did they pass to? That's fine, we'll go find them. No, we will not say my mother died last year. Well, she passed away a few months ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. We don't even say the word. We know it's wrong. There's something about it that's wrong. 
And in the Bible, it explains that it's not natural, it's a consequence, it's a curse, because you and I were created for life, life with God, but we betrayed him. And when we did, when we doubted his good heart towards us, we turned away, seeking to be independent from him, and that brought guilt, and death is part of that. Hell is another part. But death exists because of that betrayal, what the Bible calls sin. And the New Testament asserts that Jesus is God's answer for our sin to right the world. He lived without sin, but then took our place. In verse three, it says, he died in place of our sin to bear the guilt we deserved. And so if Jesus stayed dead, if Jesus stayed dead, then we have a tragedy. It's just a tragedy. But if he rose from the dead, then sin was dealt with because death comes because of sin. Do you see that? If, if, sin is, if, if death is gone, then that means sin is dealt with. If he comes back from the dead, it's because death is beginning to work backwards. And listen, because this kind of thing only makes sense in Christianity. In other religions, it doesn't matter what happened to their founder. It just doesn't matter, right? No one, no one really cares about what happened to Muhammad. No one cares what happened to Buddha. I guess there was some dude named Zoroaster at some point. No one cares what happened to him either. Right? No one cares. Because all that matters are the rules and the rituals that you keep. But in Christianity, our problem isn't behavior. So rules and rituals won't help. It is independence. And this is why Paul says this is the gospel. And that this is what we are being saved through. This. Jesus rescues us. And so if the resurrection didn't happen, not only does Christianity not matter, Christianity is impossible to keep morally. Good luck. Have you read the Beatitudes? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? It's not just adultery. It's looking at other people lustfully. It's not just, it's not just murder. It's hatred in your heart. I mean, have they been in rush hour traffic? Like that's going to happen. Can you do it? And if you even do one thing, you break one thing, you broke it all. Oh, come on. Don't get any do-overs. There's no gray area. No. The resurrection didn't happen. We're lost. If it did happen, though, then like the first Christians, our whole lives have to be recalibrated. Everything has to change from how we view ourselves to how we spend our money to how we understand the world. And listen, you may be apathetic to this. You're like, oh, he makes a good case, but do I really care? Good question. I get it, but listen, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, can I tell you, you should want to. You should want to. Because what that means is that there is a God who loves no matter what it costs. There's a God who's willing to come for jacked up people like you and me and willing to die in their place and make everything new. There's a God who cares about justice, who actually doesn't let off the guilty, but actually deals with their guilt. <laughs> and there's a God who seeks us while we're enemies. If you don't believe it, man, shouldn't you want to? I think that's worth reconsidering. Would you pray with me?
Lord, how easy it is for us to believe that we are to have our faith in faith. And even sometimes as Christians, what we think is we just need to believe harder. (laughs) We are supposed to check our brains at the door that our questions don't matter. But you are a God who doesn't balk at our questions. It doesn't just say, you just gotta believe it. He says, here, think through this, reason with me. What else can explain all of this? But Lord, if it were just a problem of us getting our facts right, then it would still be up to us to save ourselves. And so Lord, I know that there's more working in all of our hearts to suppress the truth than just our uh, lack of facts. We need you to work. So we ask that you would do that. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your law. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.